Um, well, it's good to be here, uh, and I'm kicking off a series on the Psalms this morning. So I thought at the very beginning, I'd kind of give you a little bit of an overview of the Psalms, a few facts and figures, because it's, it's quite an unusual book, actually, and it's quite a, a big book as well. So I just thought I'd give you a kind of a little insight as to what's going on in the book as a whole before focusing on one specific Psalm, if that's all right. I mean, the name Psalm itself is quite an unusual name. And it comes from the Greek word that was, uh, that was given to it as a name, salmos, which means to pluck um, with a stringed instrument. So it's kind of got this idea that there's music involved. And all the psalms were originally played to music. So they were kind of more like songs rather than prayers. We don't have any of the music with us today. We've only actually got the words of the songs. Um, they were written over a period of about a 1,000 years. So from the first to the last being written. And there's about 150 of them, so quite a few over a thousand-year period. And uh, there's at least six different authors. We're not quite sure how many, but at least six. So you sort of kind of get a picture of um, how massive a book the Book of Psalms is. Um, and they've been used, really, by people to, uh, to sing to God, to pray to God, to worship God for about 3,000 years, since the first one was written, 30 centuries. It's a long time. So it's got a really rich heritage. And there are all sorts of different types of psalms in that 150. Uh, there are um, hymns, there are processional hymns, there are um, uh, psalms of anointing for when kings are crowned. There are personal laments, there are corporate laments where a whole nation is upset that something has happened. And there are praises and there are psalms of joy. So there's loads of different types of psalms in there. But I'm going to be focusing on one specific type this morning. And that is a personal psalm of lament. Now, a lament is simply um, kind of being really upset, really grieved about something, complaining about something that's happening. And it's really interesting that those types of psalms are in our Bibles. Often we only kind of talk to God about the good things or we sing about really good, positive things. But in the psalm that we're going to look at today, we've got an example of something a little bit different. So, if you have got a Bible, why don't you grab a Bible? If you haven't got one, there, um, there are some at the back of the chairs. It'd be great if everybody could at least see one. So have a look around, and if someone hasn't got access to one, why don't you share your Bible with them? And the psalm we're going to look at this morning is Psalm 13. It's page 527 on my Bible. Probably won't mean anything to you. Psalm 13. It's in the Old Testament. It's about halfway through the book of Psalms. So Psalm 13, 1-3. Um, so yeah, you get two types of lament, really. You get corporate lament, where you know the whole people of God are complaining about something. And then you get these personal laments, so it's one person. Um, and this is a psalm of David, King David, Israel's probably best king, really. This is a psalm that he has written. So I thought, first of all, we just read through it and have a look at its general structure. And then we'll pull out the things that are relevant to us. What can we learn about God through this? How does this apply to us in the way that we pray, in the way that we engage with God today? So let's just read through it, first of all. I'm reading in the uh, NIV translation. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, 
I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praises, for he has been good to me. Quite a short psalm. I think that's really powerful and quite emotive, really. And of all the kind of the psalms of lament, this is the best example. It's so short, but it's got all the elements that all the other psalms of lament have got. Let me just highlight those two. In verse 1, we've got the address. David is addressing God. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Verse 2 and verse 3, we have, uh, we have the complaint. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day? How long will my enemy triumph over me? And then verse 3 and 4, we've got the request. Look on me and answer me, O oh God. And then verse 5 and 6, we've got the statement of faith. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. So all the Psalms of Lament have got those four elements. They've got the address, they've got the complaint, they've got the request, and then they've got the statement of faith at the end. So that's kind of, that's the general structure of the psalm. I've given you a little bit of an overview on the psalms as a whole. So what does this mean for us today? This was written thousands of years ago. What can we get from this today? So the first point I really want to get out of this is actually in the very first line. It's in the address. How long, O Lord? And actually, if you look at that line, you'll notice that Lord is written in small capitals. It's quite unusual, isn't it? And actually, that word Lord there is the, the, the word Yahweh. But our Bible translators have decided, instead of writing Yahweh for one reason or another, that they've put Lord in small capitals. So whenever you see that, particularly in the Old Testament, capital letters, Lord, it means Yahweh. What's the significance of that? Yahweh was a very particular name given to the people of God at a very particular time. You may be familiar with um, the story of the Exodus, um, the Hebrews were enslaved to the Egyptians, and God sends Moses to set them free. And, God, and, and Moses has this encounter with God through a burning bush. Moses notices a burning bush, and he, and he goes back to it, and then and he has this encounter with God. And God says to Moses, I'm going to send you to set my people free. And Moses asks, who am I going to say has sent me? God says, I am that I am. Yahweh has sent you. So when you read Lord here, you read Yahweh. And when you read Yahweh, you're reminded of that promise that God made to Moses, that he was going to set his people free, that he was going to deliver them, and he would always be their God. So when you see that, think of that promise God has made to his people, that covenant that he's made with them. So this psalm is addressed to the God of the covenant, Yahweh. But David, when he was writing this, he had quite a kind of a narrow view because Jesus hadn't yet come. So we've got a slightly different perspective to David. David was aware of God's promises to save his people, and God had saved his people. And he was aware of the promises that God was going to be with them, and he would be their God. But there was more to come, because Jesus hadn't come yet. About 2,000 years ago, God came to earth as Jesus Christ, died on a cross and was resurrected. And that's why we're Christians today. So we've got a slightly bigger view of God's plan. In fact, let me give you kind of God's plan in a nutshell, the Bible story in a few sentences. In the beginning, God created people, and people rebelled against God. 
decided they would do things their own way. So God had to get them out of the Garden of Eden for their own protection, really. But God never left them. Even when they sinned, God decided that he would clothe them. He would put clothes on their back. He was a caring God, even though people were rebelling against him. So first people left the Garden of Eden. And really from then on, the Bible is a story about how God is drawing his people back to himself. And it starts with one man, Abraham, and then it develops into Abraham's family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons, who then become the 12 tribes of Israel. So it goes from a a man to his family to a whole people group. God then saves that people group out of Egypt and creates them uh, into a nation, the nation of Israel. And then through Jesus Christ, God is actually drawing the whole world to himself. So you can see how it goes from a person to a family, to a people group, to a nation, to the whole world being drawn back to God. And it kind of finishes in the book of Revelation with this amazing picture of heaven and earth coming together and God saying he will be with his people always. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. And that's an amazing picture that gives us so much hope. But that's, that's in the future. We're not quite there yet. We're stood in the middle of Jesus has come and he's died on the cross and he's been resurrected. And if we're Christians, then we've experienced some of that and we're trying to work out what it all means. But his kingdom hasn't come in all of its fullness yet. And we're stood in the middle, aren't we? Jesus has come, but he's going to come again. And it's in the middle of that, in the middle of God's promise to bring salvation. When we don't see it happening, then we have his permission to say, how long, O Lord? How long? David was saying it in the context of his own people a couple of thousand years ago. And we get to say that now, in between God's kingdom having come, but not in its fullness. Because God promises that he will be good to us, but sometimes it doesn't seem like that. We've heard some stories this morning about some not-so-great things that are happening. Where is God in that? Well, he gives us a license to say, how long, Lord? Something else really significant about this as well, and that is that David's lament is a response. It's a response to the covenant that God has already made with his people. So it's not like David is having to force the issue. It's not like God is nowhere to be seen and he's having to make all the effort. David's prayer here is a response. If God hadn't saved his people through the exodus out of Egypt, then David wouldn't have been in that position to call on God. And if Jesus hadn't saved us, then we wouldn't be in a position to call on his name, but he has. So when we pray these prayers of lament, we're praying them simply as a response to what God is doing. And that kind of takes the pressure off a little bit. It's not like we have to force the issue. I think there's a few other things going on here as well. It's really important to, um, to grasp so, we, so that we can put our issues into, into the right focus, really. Often when something is amiss in my life, I probably complain to my wife first of all, and then maybe to some friends, and eventually they'll point me in God's direction, and then I'll pray. But the order that David presents this is really significant, actually. He addresses God first and foremost. Oh, um, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Before he begins to list what's up in his life. I think there's something really significant there. 
that God allows us to go to him first and foremost with his problems. Not that we're not allowed to talk to other people about them. I think that's a good thing to do. We should always share our concerns with people. But our complaints, our laments, should be directed at God. I wonder how many less people would fall out if our complaints were directed at God first and foremost. Something else that's, um, that's really significant as well is that this psalm doesn't leave us hopeless. It finishes with quite an inspiring um, statement of faith. I mean, it could be quite depressing if the psalm cut off at verse 4, finishing with, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. I mean, that's pretty grim. But no, thank God we've got verse 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord's praise. Um, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. <coughs> now, I'm trying to work out why is David saying that at the end? Is it that that is because God has already answered his prayer? Is it that as he's kind of singing this song, God has changed something so that this enemy that is against him is no longer? I'm not sure that's the case, actually. I'm not sure that's the case. I think David is actually singing verse 5 and 6, even though the enemy still looms large. We don't really know who or what that enemy is. Scholars presume that it's death itself. I'm not sure that it's important who the enemy is, actually, because that makes it a little bit more general for us. Who the enemy is, well, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that we address God about that enemy and we wait for his salvation. What I'd like us to do for a minute is I'd like us to picture a scene, actually. Just take a minute, relax a little bit, and imagine that you are sat in a really empty place, perhaps a park bench somewhere. It's a really nice, lovely day, and there's nobody around except for the guy who sat next to you on the bench. And that guy's Jesus. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and just imagine this scene. Imagine that you look to him Look Jesus square in the eye and say, how long, Lord, until dot, dot, dot. How would you finish that sentence? What sort of things are going on in your world that you want to say to Jesus, how long, Lord, how long will this thing go on? For a, a big thing for me is, um, is how long until my sister commits her life to Jesus. Jesus drastically saved my life in a in an amazing situation, and he saved my parents as well. And my sister's heard all about that transformation. She's heard all about Jesus, but sometimes she can be just stubborn. And my prayer is often, Lord, how long until she follows you? So I wonder what things are going on in your own world. Take that minute now, close your eyes, picture the scene. Jesus is next to you. What would you say to him? How long, Lord, until dot, dot, dot. Just take a minute in the silence.
And as you're imagining what you would say to, uh, to Jesus, try and hold these ideas in, in your mind that, that God has made certain promises and that we complain in the context of those promises. God, why are we not seeing this happen? You said, you promised. Thousands of years, people have complained to God and he's allowed them to do so in the light of his promises. Because our God has really broad shoulders. He's able to shoulder those complaints.